Maybe it's just that you don't know how to use social courtesy. Oh, that's old-fashioned. Watch how Lizzie Post and Dan Post Senate act as host and hostess. They know that courtesy means showing respect, thinking of the other person, real friendliness. Hello! And welcome to Awesome Etiquette. Where we explore modern etiquette through the lens of consideration, respect, and honesty. On today's show, we take your etiquette questions on not being the office therapist. When you have too many people to invite to your birthday, who pencils who in when scheduling, and is it boasting or not? Plus, your most excellent feedback, etiquette salute, and a postscript segment on dancing and balls. Like, fancy balls. Coming up. Awesome Etiquette comes to you from the studios of Vermont Public Radio and is proud to be produced in Burlington, Vermont by the Emily Post Institute. I'm Lizzie Post. And I'm Dan Post-Senning. Oh, my goodness. So I'm, like, not going to see you for a month. Marathon Awesome <laughs> Etiquette. <laughs> yeah. Where Dan and I are in the in the throes of recording, like, three three episodes in a row. That doesn't sound so much, but when you're writing the episodes and then recording them and then making sure they sound good to get them up and out on time, it, I don't know. It feels like a lot of Awesome Etiquette right now. When you usually come and go from a studio once a week, all of a sudden saying, see you here tomorrow, <laughs> it feels like we're... And the next day, too. <laughs> exactly. Like, things are happening on the Awesome Etiquette front. No, they are are happening and and not just there either. I'm headed out to Oregon for a couple weeks where I'm going to link up with Miss Kelly Williams Brown. So I'm really excited to see her um, in person. Uh, But Oregon's a new state for me. I've actually never been there. So I'm really stoked to go and visit. I hope I'm going to get some time to do a little hiking and uh, enjoy the natural side, all the natural wonders. I'm excited for you. And I'm a little jealous (laughs) that you're going to get to see Kelly Williams Brown in her home environment. I know. It's going to be cool. And then I will be out in the Pacific Northwest also. I'm heading out to Seattle the end of the month, but you will already be gone. We're going to be like ships that pass in the night. (laughs) And in between, I'm going to visit the Little Apple, Manhattan, Kansas, for an annual trip that I so look forward to at Kansas State. That's so cute. I love it, the Little Apple. (laughs) That's awesome. But that does mean that you and I really, we're not going to see each other for almost four whole weeks, which is, that's a lot of time. (laughs) Kind of pretty unbelievable. I know. Not to like bring it back to etiquette or anything because I know we've talked about how that doesn't always have to happen in the intro but like it it is one of those funny things where you and I have to kind of set ourselves up for the etiquette of communicating while we're away and both of us have a tendency to not respond to calls not respond to texts not respond to emails when we aren't kind of around each other on a more regular basis it's interesting to me how like it's both permissive. We're like, okay, I understand. Like, you're away. Like, you're dealing with things. Like, da da da. And then it's also like, crud, we have to get a hold of each other. We need to touch base. We've got to make sure. Otherwise, it's going to be a month before we see each other. There's so. going to be this project yeah. deadline around this week. We've got this project that's still touch base not on. tied up. So we need to be sure that we continue to move that forward and yeah. communicate. No, exactly. So we're going to definitely be exercising our awesome etiquette and trying to to make our communications go smoothly over the next month. It'll be fun to see how it goes. I know. We're going to practice a little business etiquette ourselves. A little business etiquette. Speaking of business etiquette, we do have a business etiquette question in the show today. I think the question that we have queued up is one of my most challenging business etiquette question. Interesting. Oh, well, I will definitely be reading it to you. Shall we get to those questions? Let's do it. 
Awesome Etiquette is here to answer your questions on how to behave. And if you have a question for us, you can email it to awesomeetiquette at emilypost.com. Leave us a voicemail or send us a text message to 802-858-KIND. That's 802-858-5463. Or hit us up on Twitter and Facebook. Just use the hashtag Awesome Etiquette so we know you want your question on the show. Our first question is about business etiquette, but I almost wish Pooja Senning was here for The Therapist is Out. (laughs) Hello, Lizzie and Dan. I want to thank you for your podcast and the advice you offer. I think in the busy pace associated with modern life, we too often forget to have thoughtful consideration of others. I appreciate your encouragement for others to return to a place of thoughtful consideration. My question today centers around workplace etiquette. Specifically, we have someone in our office who apparently hates my boss and takes any and all opportunities to complain about him. While I support her right to vent her frustrations, I no longer wish to be her sounding board. This is particularly problematic because her desk is between mine and the main door of the office, meaning that she often uses me leaving the office to use the restroom or grab a snack to launch into a 10-plus minute complaint. I often do not have the time to stand and listen, and I also do not want to be associated with this negative discussion in the office. I have tried to politely cut the conversation short, even walking away slowly from her at times when her complaints become particularly lengthy. I've learned that these conversations more involve her talking at me than with me, so my lack of participation in the conversation does not shorten it. How would you handle this situation tactfully? Thanks, Ashley. Ashley, thank you for this question. Isn't it a great question? It is. This is a nexus of bad work etiquette and etiquette in general. We have negative griping and complaining. We have someone who's just talking at someone, not listening. Someone who's completely missing nonverbal cues that are often (laughs) a first line of defense when you're trying to redirect a conversation. I think this is... Not an uncommon problem. It's so not uncommon. I've been both people in this situation. I've been the person who's griping and complaining too, too much. Dan's like applauding me being able to say that. So, well, come on. We have to admit our mistakes. Like, no, we're that was a, human too. a genuine golf clap if you can give one because it's true. And being able to see the way we all participate in these it behaviors happens. is a big part of addressing them. When you have something on your mind that's really there and you're seeking an outlet for it, it it can become consuming. It can become habitual. Um, and all these things I feel like are very present in the situation Ashley is dealing with. And it's nice to recognize them so that you don't start doing them again. You know, it's like in the future when Ashley has that thing that's totally consuming her brain, whether it's love life or finances or family life or whatever it is, you know, you hope that she's going to have the moment in the future where she's like, wait a second, I need to like slow my roll and think about what's going on here. But Right now, she's dealing with someone who's not picking up, as you mentioned, on any of the signals of, hey, this isn't working for me. What do you do? It's business. It's a business world. And the, the I think the usual answer to this type of situation is you start to slowly escalate your response. Yeah. That you start with the most moderate responses. You start with those non-verbal. subtle cues, yeah. those nonverbal mm-hmm. cues. You, you walk away. Then you start getting more concrete with the way that you end or truncate that conversation. I'm on my way out the door. Let's pick this up tomorrow. Or I just don't have time right now. But you, you start to just address the immediate 
situation that I'm on my way out. I don't have time. I'm trying to get back to my desk to get some work done. I think that the next sort of stair as you start to work your way up the process is actually addressing your concern with the topic or what's being discussed. I'm really not comfortable talking about this right now or I'm trying to watch the conversations that I have about other people. And you can take some ownership of the the content and the direction of the conversation yourself that even if it's primarily the other person who's talking about the boss in this negative way, you acknowledge your participation in the conversation is something that you're trying to work on yourself. Mm-hmm. And then I think sort of the final step of the conversation is the big boundary setting conversation where you ask to talk with someone and say, listen, I'm, I'm really trying to pay attention to how I interact with people at work and I, I don't want to be participating in a lot of negative gossip. And I think that's the sort of the final and the last straw. And I think at some stage you might need to get to that level, but there's probably some territory somewhere in between slowly backing away mm-hmm. and asking to talk to someone about the way that you're interacting where you're going to find the cue that works to truncate this conversation. I think a lot of what we get caught up on is feeling like we need to identify the other person's behavior in order to correct it. And I think we just don't have to do that that often. Um, This isn't the time to say you shouldn't be talking like this. This isn't the time to say any of that. I think the issue here is you, Ashley, are not comfortable talking about your boss like this. You can just say that. You can say, you know, Kara, I just want to let you know I'm really not comfortable talking about our boss like this. I'm probably not the best person to come to for this conversation anymore. And that's it. Boundary set, feeling communicated, and no judgment. But you're setting that clear. I can't do this. I'm not comfortable with this. I think Um, that's a really good point. (laughs) The other person's behavior can be really hard to address. And you start to get into dicey and tricky territory very quickly. And in many ways, the challenge is here is effective boundary setting. Yeah. And some people will pick up on subtle boundary setting. Some people you have to get more concrete and explicit about it. But exactly. I really like the sample script that you just gave for the level where you really need to be clear and explicit yeah. about it. Personally, I would go to it if the nonverbal stuff didn't work. I'd jump from nonverbal to a straight, listen, I'm not comfortable having this conversation about our boss. Because that's just in the moment. You can say that and then, you know, finish pouring your tea and go back to your desk. And there's not a whole lot that Kara can say in response to that. And if she does, it says, you know, I I understand. I've been there. It's just I wanted to let you know that at this point I'm not comfortable with it. You know, that's another pretty decent little sample script. (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) No, I mean there, there can be a moment of empathy, a moment of understanding before you say, listen, I really am not comfortable having this conversation and I think that someone will get that message very quickly. I don't think you're going to have to deliver that type of a message very often before someone nips. And and I'll tell you, you will do yourself and the business a favor doing this. One of the things that's so insidious about griping and negative gossip is the way it's it's almost catching. The way that it it can start to spread through an organization and and really becomes corruptive of organizational culture. And even if there's a legitimate complaint, even if the problem itself is frustration, (laughs) being really careful about how you share those negative feelings is so smart and worthwhile. And I, I... I liked where you started our conversation today, Lizzie Post, by talking about how you've been on both sides of this because everyone has. So easy. And the reason I wish we had my 
mental health therapist, counselor <laughs> wife here is that she will talk about the importance of being able to share feelings and have feelings validated. And there is something important about being able to take something you're feeling bad about and talk about it. Yeah. But no, Karen that, needs an outlet. She's just got to find the right one. <laughs> exactly. But doing that in a way that actually allows you to process and yeah. deal with those feelings and, and, and be positive about what happens next is an important part of doing that well and and really is what sort of earns you it's the price of admission for having that conversation it's true and it is easy to understand why kara is seeking a fellow workmate to talk about this with it's easy for us as etiquette experts to talk about why work is not the appropriate place one of the things that we taught in our seminars for years was that based on a ladders.com survey gossip was actually one of the number two reasons for a fireable offense and that's legit that i mean we have been brought into companies because gossip was the issue that was going on and they wanted to work on that for their soft skills and training. And it really is that much of a a virus that can kind of spread through a company. And it's important to shut it down, especially if you're someone like Ashley who feels really uncomfortable dealing with it. Some people can listen to it and be like, whatever, you're talking in my ear while I pour a coffee, no big deal. Other people, it gets in there. And when that happens, Ashley, I hope you have the confidence and you feel really comfortable standing up and saying, this isn't a conversation I want to have. It can sound a little cheesy, <laughs> but one of the the little markers that Lizzie Post and I sometimes use with each other, and it can apply all the time, but I find it helpful, is to think about whether or not you would be comfortable saying what you're saying or taking ownership of what you're saying if the other person were to hear it. That you can't always go through your life as if everybody's going to hear everything that you say. But if you ask yourself, would I be comfortable if this person heard about me having this conversation? particularly for a place of business where more of what you do is public and you have to be prepared for more of what you do being public. I think it's worth thinking about whether you could own what you're saying with the person that you're talking about. Or how about just with the appropriate person to talk to it about? You know, if this really is a problem with your boss, then you need to be able to speak with somebody at your company about it. And you might not say everything that you'd say to Ashley to your boss's face. I think that's part of what venting is, is it's a little bit giving yourself permission to say the worst so that you don't say the worst to the person um, so that you're managing it without, you know, necessarily making it someone else's problem. But here you're making it Ashley's problem. Dan's got a really good point here. You know, are you going to address it or is this just always going to be kind of event fest to use better language (laughs) um and i think that's a it's a really good litmus test to give yourself can i deal with this or do i just want to complain ashley thank you for bringing this question to us we really appreciate the opportunity to talk about something that can be difficult talking's lots of fun except sometimes when you talk about people That's when the trouble starts. How can you tell the difference between fact and gossip? Awesome Etiquette gets support from StoryWorth. There are some stories about your mom's life that you truly never get tired of hearing. From hilarious to heartfelt, tear-jerking to plot-twisting, mom's retelling of the events always brings a bit of joy. Just in time for Mother's Day, we here at Awesome Etiquette found the perfect gift that can capture all of your mom's stories for your family forever. It's called StoryWorth. StoryWorth helps you preserve precious memories and stories from your mom or a mother figure in your life for years to come. Here's how it works. Each week, StoryWorth emails your loved one a thought-provoking question that you get to help pick. 
What was your first job? Who was your first crush? (laughs) StoryWorth makes the writing process a breeze. All your loved one needs to do is to respond to the email prompt with a story. Long or short, it doesn't matter. I did this with my mom and it was really, really rewarding. You'll be emailed a copy of your loved one's responses as they're submitted over the course of the year. You'll get to enjoy their retelling of the stories, some you probably already know, or maybe the ones that you're surprised by you haven't heard before. (laughs) After that year of fun discovery and reminiscing, StoryWorth compiles your loved one's stories and photos into a beautiful keepsake hardcover book that you'll be able to share and revisit for generations to come. You can even keep a copy of the book for yourself. Give all the moms in your life a unique, heartfelt gift that you all will cherish for years. StoryWorth. Right now, save $10 on your first purchase when you go to storyworth.com manners. That's storyworth, S-T-O-R-Y-W-O-R-T-H dot com slash manners. It's manners with an S to save $10 on your first purchase. And now back to our show. Our next question is titled, What's a Birthday Boy to Do? Hi, Lizzie and Dan. I'm a big fan of your podcast and love listening to it on my morning commute. My boyfriend's 30th birthday is coming up in July, and I have a question regarding the etiquette around inviting people. To give you some background, both of his parents passed away five years ago, and there were some family friends that really helped him through that time. He completed two different university degrees and has worked at a couple of different companies. In addition to that, he lives in a neighborhood in London that has a tight-knit community. By adding up all these people and their plus ones, you get to a really big number really quickly. And he is still a trainee solicitor, so not on a huge salary. He thinks that he has to invite all these people, possibly acquaintances that would be offended otherwise, and give everyone a plus one. I slightly disagree, but I am from a different country, Austria, so etiquette there might be different to the English-speaking world. While I think it would be lovely to have a huge party, I don't think there is an obligation to invite everyone and burden yourself financially so much. I suggested that picking out key people that were really important to him in this last decade and having a more intimate party with them would be nicer. It would mean you get to spend more time talking to each of them and they would feel extra special for being part of a selected few. I suggested that he could always organize drinks with his colleagues on a separate day or issue a more casual coffee and cake invitation to his neighbors separately, which would also mean you don't have quite that many different age and friendship groups coming together. I also suggested that he wouldn't have to invite all the plus ones except if the couple are married, live together, or he knows both of them fairly well. What are your thoughts on this? What are the rules around making a guest list? Does it change whether you are 30, 40, or 50, or if you are in the early stages of your career versus when you are more established? Is there a rule that you should never invite more people to an event than you can actually talk to, i.e. if he invited 70 people, the event would need to last around six hours in order to speak to everyone for even five minutes? (laughs) Take note. Take note of that math. (laughs) Do you have any other good ideas about making people feel part of the celebration without going overboard on the guest list? Thanks for the great podcast, and I'm looking forward to hearing from you sincerely when a guest list turns into a novel. So can I just say when a guest list turns into a novel, or I feel like we should call you author, author, <laughs> like this, you, everything you suggested is what we would have suggested to suggest your boyfriend. I love the idea of the smaller parties with the groups. That way you're not, you know, you're not offending anyone. You can probably keep each one to a manageable, you know, like we said, coffee and cake, um, something like that, a few beers, like something easy, depending on 
on what what's the right fit. I mean, this is like the perfect suggestion. I even like the suggestions of the type of party for each of the groups. Yes, but like author, what was boyfriend's reaction to that? That's what I want to know because I feel like that's the problem we need to deal with. And my guess is that he's really unsure of whether this is really okay. It is really okay. I also really want to address this plus one issue. Established couples get invited to things socially together. It's uh, Dan has told me before that it would feel weird if Pooja wasn't included um, on an invitation, even if the friend had never met her before. And I would love sometime to have another conversation about just the idea of that and, and the individual and our pairings in society and culture as a whole, being a single person. It's very interesting, the idea of attaching to someone and what that means socially. And that's a whole other conversation. But generally speaking, he is right that couples are often invited together. Um, I would say married, definitely invited together to social events. Long time established couples usually invited together. Boyfriend, girlfriend, like of new state, not always invited together. And so it's a toss up. You're really going to have to weigh out how your friend feels about the person, what your friend is like, um, that sort of thing to figure out whether to invite the plus one. But folks who are who are single like myself, you you don't have to issue a plus one to those folks. The plus one really is a plus one. It's yeah. an option. And it's, it's just usually for larger, more like, you know, uh, formal events. Um, but I really think that the ideas you have suggested are the right ideas. The other thing is to just gather everyone for a very community-based type event where it is potluck. Folks are bringing something. You know, maybe you go to a large park and gather with everybody. I mean, we see those types of gatherings happen and they're really successful. I agree with you that the more guests you have, the more time you need to spend greeting them and you, you do lose that kind of intimacy of occasion. But I think that it's worth considering if you want to deal with it all in one big fell swoop. I, I, let's go from big to small. Okay, go for it. For a big event, what are some of the types of things that you do that make people feel included? Toasts um, and weddings. We do oh, receiving like you mean lines. to celebrate a big event, not like just yeah. for a like five hundred person party. You mean like the, to celebrate the big things, if you're, like well, turning thirty? Exactly. And I don't think they're, they're I don't think it varies a lot. I mean, obviously, yeah. your practical considerations are going to matter, and they're going to be yeah. different at thirty, forty, fifty, and sixty. But I like the list you were just creating. Toasts. What else? For weddings, it's receiving lines and the effort that you make when dinner is served to circulate from table to table. Obviously, you're not going to have a receiving line at your birthday say, party. Wait, Dan, what are you suggesting? <laughs> but you do figure out a way to to touch each person. You yeah. want to be sure that you Just establish some kind of human contact with yeah. everybody, and you can give it to yourself as an assignment. I am going to get from table to table, and that might mean that you don't get to sit down and eat the same meal that everybody <laughs> else got to sit down and eat at that particular time or, or whatever it is. But I do think that there is a certain etiquette consideration to thinking about how you engage your guests, mm-hmm. how you make people feel included. I love your idea of a barbecue, a, a sort of a potluck or a banquet feel. That's oftentimes a way to achieve sort of a practically viable and party. Usually with those bigger parties, you kind of do need something going on. So I don't want to call it entertainment. Like you don't have to hire entertainment, but there's usually some kind of game or activity or dancing or, exactly. you know, a band that comes or a DJ. Just something that kind of keeps the party going because there are that many people. You are going to be there for a while. A croquet set, a game Just of frisbee. something. Uh, <laughs> um, so I would, if you go the big party route, prepare for something like that. Try to have some, some fun things to keep people occupied, keep them there at the party for more than just an hour or two. So it's less a rule about exactly what size, but right. having the appropriate 
appropriate party for the size group that you do decide to entertain. I agree. And I, I'm with my cousin Lizzie. I like the idea of breaking it up. I like the smaller affairs. I like the idea of being able to engage people more. I love the way you're thinking about guest lists and being intentional about it. And ultimately, that's your first job as a host is deciding who you're going to invite to what kind of event. And that's you taking the first step towards being a really excellent host and helping your boyfriend celebrate this important milestone in a way that's appropriate, feels festive, and makes all the people who are included feel good also. When a guest list turns into a novel who I've renamed author, I hope that you feel encouraged to run with some of these great ideas that you have already talked about and that with Dan's explanation of really what what makes a great party great, what are the things that make celebrating someone, you know, end up feeling celebrated, I think that you really have some options to work with. And we hope that you all have a fabulous time. Happy 30th birthday! And whenever we go to any more parties, we'll remember to be clean and neat and to be on time. And we'll be considerate of others, too. We'll join in the games. Our next question is titled, Who Pencils Who In? Dear Lizzie and Dan, thank you so much for creating and maintaining awesome etiquette. My friends and I love it so much. Now, on to my question. I am currently in law school and find myself regularly speaking with attorneys in varying positions. Some of these conversations are formal interviews, typically phone interviews, as I'm targeting my job search outside the state I am currently in. However, at times these conversations, again, often over the phone, are not formal interviews, but more not-so-casual catch-ups. For instance, I met an attorney, I'll call her Rachel, this summer who is a partner at a law firm where I would love to work someday. She is a friend of one of my closest friends who is also an attorney. Rachel and I met in a casual professional networking setting and had the opportunity to chat. We had a great time and she asked that I follow up with her regarding my job hunt. She's been a huge help and mentor. Throughout this past school year, I've scheduled several calls with her typically around once a month or so, or as big news comes in, I send her an email with an update on my applications, interviews, networking, and other progress. Sometimes she'll request that we catch up via phone. We discuss schedules and pick a time. After agreeing on a time, she will say something like, I'll send you a calendar request. If you're not familiar, though, I'm sure you are, and most listeners probably are too, a calendar request on Outlook or Google is where you put something in your calendar and then invite someone to it so that it shows up on their calendar. You can often add multiple people. Rachel and I went through this sequence today, and I wondered if I should be the one volunteering to create and send the calendar request and send it to her instead of the other way around, since I'm the more junior person in this relationship. However, I'm concerned that creating the calendar request may be analogous to someone going into an old-school datebook and writing their name in your calendar. I've heard attorneys and other professionals in the past become frustrated with students who schedule phone calls or casual meetings and then send calendar requests for them. The assumption by the student that they merited a spot on this person's calendar for such an informal conversation or meetup was frustrating to some of these professionals. Thus, I'm looking to avoid that error. I also have several more thoughts on this question. First, law is exceptionally old school, and there's a strict hierarchy of authority. I, as a law student, am at the very bottom, not only from an experience perspective, but also in that my time is currently still free. As a partner at a firm, every minute of Rachel's day is very expensive, and I'm exceptionally fortunate that she has decided to mentor me and help me out. 
Thus, I should be taking every step to reduce the burden of work on her end. Though creating and sending a calendar request is a small amount of work, even that does take away from paying clients and other firm responsibilities. However, my other perspective is that even after we settle on a time, it may seem I am presuming that she wants me on her calendar. I am very protective of my calendar and hate it when people do this to me. I know it's a normal part of business, but I typically keep my calendar very neat and heavily color-coded, which often isn't reflected by these types of requests. What I fear might be worse than wasting her time is assuming that she wants me on her calendar. Thus, the title of the question. I don't want to force myself in or disrupt a system that is working for her. The solution to this problem that I came to is that once we settle on a time, it may be appropriate for me to close the email with something like, would you like me to generate a calendar request or meeting time? But again, I'm not quite sure that that's the best answer. I apologize for the lengthy email. I really thought this would be a simple question. Any thoughts or advice would be appreciated. Thank you again, Amanda. What an excellent question. Can we just say, like, thank you, Amanda? I mean, like, obviously, we can't read every question that goes into such full detail. But I felt like this one really explored a lot of the considerations that are leading to Amanda being stymied. She doesn't know which way to go. She doesn't know what to do because she's it's like when we over etiquette ourselves and it's like I've etiquetted myself right into a corner. (laughs) Like now I just don't know what to do. But I love all the points that she's bringing up. I agree. It's almost like there's no way to fail when you're taking this much care, but then you could be incapacitated (laughs) and not take action. I'm I'm hearing the voice of my grandfather, the steward of this tradition while we were growing up, saying the best is the enemy of the good. So it is. You have to do something sometimes. And and you you do the best you can. And I love our consideration, respect, honesty framework because it could sort of help. Now, how do you balance these maybe competing considerations. Well, first of all, etiquette gold stars. I think that doing networking, building business relationships is so fundamentally important. And I see that investment going on here on on both sides of this relationship, mentor and mentee, that both parties get something out of a relationship like this. Oftentimes, there are people in our lives that that help us out and it feels really good to play that role for someone else, to return that favor when you reach that stage in your career. And I don't want to I want to encourage Amanda to continue to think about um, respecting this person's time, but also not to so question her her position in this relationship that, that she doesn't feel comfortable making a very reasonable offer like the one she's suggesting. Would it be helpful if I sent a calendar request? By the way, I feel like that is the answer to the question right then. And if you're unsure, just ask if someone wants you to create one, right? And I think it's um, a great ask to make because there is the the courtesy that comes up in this email that if you're asking something of someone, you don't also want to ask them to do more work on top of that. And by offering to generate that request and send it, you're offering to do that work yourself. In some ways, you're noticing that this is something that she does. So it's probably because you've had a relationship where this has worked before, something that you have some cue that that it's something that works for this person. She might say, no, it works great for me. Then I get to color code it just the way I want. <laughs> and I'm pretty sure when you receive them, you then can color code to your own color codings, just so you know. Can. But yeah, I was like, I'm pretty sure you and I do that because we're different colors on our calendars. But it might be easier when you're in the calendar generating the yep. request than if you're accepting it in an email. Different people have different systems. I think you, you make that offer. It's a little bit like asking to hold someone's chair for them. Mm-hmm. You're asking permission to perform a courtesy if they would appreciate it they'll take you up on it if they would rather do it themselves they'll let you know exactly and you're going to be in good shape absolutely i want to talk about though this this perception of the calendar being precious and 
And the idea that these casual conversations, oh, I can't believe these kids would deign to like to send me a calendar invite for this casual conversation. We're going to help. I got to be really honest. If you're taking the time to schedule even a casual conversation, I think it's okay for someone to say, are we really having this call at this time? It's not going to get taken up with other things. It is the time you are choosing to reserve together. And if the other person doesn't want to see it on their calendar, they can deal with that. Like, I honestly think that these kids are probably doing a pretty decent thing by sending the calendar request. I think they should add an etiquette step in there that would help, which would be to first ask, would you like me to send a calendar request while, You know, when I set up the appointment on my own calendar? It's easy to do. It's obviously just a courtesy. But I don't think people should be taking offense when someone else is trying to be responsible to an agreed upon appointment, regardless of the nature of that appointment. It's okay if you say it's casual and you say, hey, let's keep this loose. Let's pencil this in. Putting it in in pen means we're going for it. Putting it in in pencil means we're probably going to touch base. I personally am the kind of person who tries to schedule the touch base. Let me touch base with you on Tuesday, but let's put it on the calendar for Wednesday. You make a great point. When you say yes to an invitation, you don't say, yes, but yours isn't an important invitation, so it's not going on my calendar. Like, come on. (laughs) Maybe. These are open office hours. I can't reserve you the time, but come by my office. I will be there taking student questions at that time. There's usually plenty of time available. Yeah, there's usually no line. (laughs) That is a reasonable response to send also, but I, I couldn't agree more about this idea of sort of tearing in your own mind whether or not something is worth it. If you agree to spend the time with someone, you agree to spend the time with them. And if you don't want to put something on your calendar, don't put it on your calendar. Exactly. I love Amanda's desire to respect the fact that her her mentor can bill at a certain hourly rate and that she understands that sometimes these calls are happening on work hours, but also know that your mentor is preparing her schedule to handle it. She will make the work where she needs to make it work. It's her responsibility to take care of her workload. And it is your responsibility to simply respect when she says, I can't. (laughs) The value of that time is a big part of what establishes that um, institutional professional hierarchy that Amanda also mentions in this question and an awareness both of the existence of that hierarchy, the reasons that it's in place really helps figure out ways to respectfully honor and engage those traditions and make good decisions because you understand where they come from. This was one of the first places that the little gold star flashes started going off in my mind as I was reading this question. Absolutely. The only thing I'm going to take note of before we close out, unless you have any other... No? Okay, good. Um, Is that do be careful when you decline a calendar invite. So a lot of the times what will happen for for Dan and me is that we will take care of our own calendars and then someone else in the the group for, for whatever appointment it is will then send a calendar invite. So I had the situation where Dan and I had a had a call that was scheduled and the person who was calling in not from our company declined my invitation and I got a notice of the decline and I immediately emailed and said, oh my goodness, do we need to reschedule? I had seen you decline, but I hadn't seen a note or an email about it. And he said, oh no, 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 didn't mean to scare you. Call is still on. I just already had it in my calendar. So I was declining the invite you sent. That can happen. If you do make that decline because you've already put it in your own calendar and it's all set, just let the other person know that that it is marked. You are still on. Everything is still good.
Amanda, we hope that this helps. Uh, congratulations on having such an awesome relationship with your mentor. And we think that that is just, it is awesome etiquette the way you are thinking about this. I remember that beginning typing class as if it were yesterday. I was lucky enough to have Miss Purcell as my teacher. She taught us much more than typing. She was teaching us to get along in the business world, and typing was only a part of it. Our next question is about boasting or not. Hi, guys. Love your show. I'm hoping you can offer some insight on a situation that has been coming up a lot for me lately. It is widely known among my friends and acquaintances that I've been going through the process of applying for law school. Another lawyer. (laughs) They ask me when they see me if I've heard back yet. And I tell them, yes, I got into the school I want to attend. Yay! (laughs) I usually don't mention that I also received a full-ride scholarship to that school. Double yay! (laughs) I am happy and excited, but I don't want to show off, so I have just told my closest friends and family. My question, is including that info showing off or just sharing happy news? I know my friends would be happy for me if they knew about the scholarship. I also know many people, including my lawyer friends, consider law school a questionable decision because of the debt, and I don't want them to think I am making a bad decision. But nobody likes a braggart. And what about when I'm writing thank you notes to the people who wrote me letters of recommendation? Should I tell them the good news? Thank you for your help. D. D, that is awesome news. And congratulations. congratulations. Hey, I think this one is really quick and easy. It's family and finance, FF. It's those top-tier level three conversations. You don't have to tell them anything about how it is that you are affording school. And I don't want you to worry, D, at all about them thinking you are going into debt. You will be able to just be comfortable, I am guessing. I don't know your finances for the for the personal expenses of law school, but it sounds like school is covered, and that's a huge relief. My guess is that you aren't going to be walking around talking about what a bad decision the debt is or feeling the weight of that debt or anything. And so my 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 encouragement to you is that it's none of their business how you get to law school. It's none of their business how you afford it, and it's not their business – If you're going into debt over it, this is really something that you can keep private to your own life. And I think it's probably a good idea for the most part to do exactly what you've done. Tell the very close friends and family who you know aren't going to judge you or who you know won't be personally hurt by your receiving this. And I'm not quite sure why people get personally hurt by it, but they do. It's funny how money And people being awarded money gets very judgmental all of a sudden. People feel opinionated about it. Dan's making all these faces across the mic for me. I wish you could see him right now. Because join the conversation. I also really like this instinct to be circumspect. Yeah. I think that you you hit the nail on the head with the family and finance. This is tier three conversation. Yeah. I think that you don't even need to avoid it. You just – Answer the question that's asked. Did I you get into in. school? Yes, I did. And you and you celebrate that joy and good news with all the excitement that the yay exclamation point conveys. Yes. And for those close friends and family where because of the history, the way your relationship is already established, the door is open to yeah. have those more personal, intimate conversations. You have them and you share that double yay good news with those <laughs> exactly. people. And sometimes there's that middle ground territory, those people that are somewhere in between the obvious yeses and the clear, I just give them this first level information and you look for the cues. Does the conversation evolve? Does it go on? Does it go beyond? Have you heard from schools? Did you get in? 
are these the people that you then have those follow-up conversations with about what the process was like and we're thinking about ourselves where all of a sudden the door starts to get opened. I've been thinking about law school myself. I don't know how I'm going to pay for it. Whatever it is that starts to to, to make that conversation broader and, and, and cover that other area where it might come up, your double yay good news also <laughs> shared with – care and tact. And remember, too, that just because the other person brings up finances doesn't mean you have to. Doesn't mean you have to. Exactly. Like they might say something like, oh, I got into this, but I just don't know if I can afford it. And you can say, I know that's a tough part of the process. You can sympathize, but you don't have to share your own situation. Lots of folks feel comfortable asking awkward questions and someone might ask you how you're going to afford it. And you can choose whether or not you're going to say, you know, I'll figure out a way. Or whether you say, you know, I was actually awarded a scholarship, so I'm, I'm really fortunate in that respect right now. You'll make the decision based on the person and the situation. And sometimes it'll just be based on how you're feeling in that moment. But, D, I definitely want you to have the confidence that it's your choice who gets to know that information. For the more specific question about the people that wrote you letters of recommendation, yes. for me, I'm thinking about whether those letters of recommendation impacted your receiving the scholarship or not. If the letters of recommendation were really just about your admittance to the law school, I would keep my thanks in that I agree. area, that category. If their letter of recommendation was a part of you getting a scholarship, if they were aware that that was part of the application process, if they were somehow involved in it, then I would also share that good news. I think part of the way that you take that relationship that began with the good recommendation and continue to move it forward into your professional life is that you you follow up with those people. And I think you do it to the degree that they were involved in the particular thing that you're following up about. Absolutely. Dee, congratulations on getting into law school. Thank you for your questions. And please don't forget to send us updates and comments to awesomeetiquette at emilypost.com. You can leave us a voice message or send us a text at 802-858-KIND. That's 802-858-5463. Or hit us up on Twitter and Facebook. Just use the hashtag awesomeetiquette so we know you want your question on the show. Each week we like to hear your thoughts about the questions we answer and the topics we cover. Today's feedback begins. Hi, Lizzie and Dan. I'm writing in response to episode number 177 and your request for feedback on family names reaching beyond the sixth generation. My brother is a sixth. When his son was born, he chose not to continue the tradition into the seventh generation. Our father's feelings were slightly hurt that the long tradition ended, but everyone else in the family was relieved to have more name variety in the family. In addition to multiple men in the family with the same name, my brother married a woman with the same first name as me. Over different periods, three men with the same name and two women with the same name lived in my parents' house. Christmas presents under the tree had to be labeled with nicknames and notations to distinguish who was who. And credit reports were jumbled because we shared similar names oh, and no. addresses. <laughs> Many children in our family now carry family history in their middle name with maternal maiden names or other single ancestral names. I prefer this approach of keeping traditional ties in a name while also diversifying the dinner table roll call. Thanks for the great show. Sister of the sixth. I love that. I'm dying for someone to write in who's gone double digits, you know, like the 10th or 11th. But we haven't gotten that yet. So I'm excited. But this is very cool. I love the idea of Christmas needing to be, you know, and everyone must just have to be so patient around the whole like, like she was saying, the credit reports and everything. I mean, goodness. like We have multiple settings that live on the same road. Yes. And a lot of them have the same uh, 
first initials. Yes. So even just the first initial last name, the male's just constantly crossing. Gosh, I can only imagine. You and I joke around about nicknames all the time. Oh, I know. And when you have multiple generations of the family all with the same names, this sort of almost ridiculousness around the nicknames that develop is both fun and maybe (laughs) could just be the original name to begin with. (laughs) No, totally, totally. Please definitely consider sending us any more updates to this wonderful naming question and how different generations being named the same have affected your family. We would love to hear more. Thank you for sending us all your thoughts and updates. Please do keep them coming. You can send your next comment or update to awesomeetiquette at emilypost.com or leave us a message or text at 802-858-KIND. That's 802-858-5463. It's time for our Postscript segment where we dive deeper into a topic of etiquette. And today's Postscript is coming right on the heels of our delicious dip into how to behave though a debutante. And I figured we actually have some dance etiquette in the 19th edition, and I thought it would be fun to explore it. This is more in the formal vein of dancing, kind of the traditional um, social places that we see it. So we're talking about weddings. Um, This is often partner dancing as opposed to, like, dancing at a club or something like that. Um, But what I loved is that when I found this little section on dance on page 317, it was followed up by how to dress for a ball. Receiving lines at a ball and midnight supper or breakfast. And these are ideas that like are from days of old. And I'm dying to know if they still happen. And you actually had someone ask you a question recently about balls, right? I did. I had a question after a business seminar I was doing about a tire at a gala that was also a ball. And as I think about this question, I also think about all of the doors that are open by having some awareness of this etiquette. The second you start to approach social dance as an opportunity, all of a sudden in this world of dancing with the stars, you might find yourself somewhere and asking someone to dance. And who knows what could happen from there? <laughs> so a little bit about dance etiquette is that uh, when there is dancing, let's just all admit it, it's more fun when everyone participates. Just the advice so that you're about to get to. if there is dancing at a wedding well, or at an event that you're right at, now. jump on that dance floor. Or... Get out there. Participate. Have fun. Your host has recognized that people do enjoy this. So even if you have two left feet, jump with, jump in with both of them. <laughs> I would say. But my big thing is always get on the dance floor and boogie just a little bit, even if we're not talking partner dancing. So what's going to help you do that? (laughs) Well, one of the first tips is that these days women can do the asking. There is like dancing is gender neutral here. We do not assign asking to gender. It's perfectly all right, no matter uh, what your identity is, for you to decide to go up and ask someone else who looks like they would be a fun person out on that dance floor with you to join you. Tradition will state that every man at a private ball should dance with the hostess and the women that he sits between at dinner, but he dances the first dance of the evening with his partner or date. Now, I'm not sure at some of these really big balls and galas if that actually happens, if we dance, if everyone dances with the the host or hostess, but I would imagine. But if we're talking about the most formal standard and then making intelligent choices about where to deviate from it, having some idea that 
Dancing with your host at some point might be one of the formal standards and expectations is a good place to start. And that dancing with your date is the good pl- is like is actually dan- the is, place to start. Actually, good start. point. That's a good place to actually start the dancing. And then beyond that, you could, if you were looking to make sure that you were kind of making the rounds throughout the evening, look to the women that you dined with on either side of you. Uh, If the dance floor is particularly crowded, you want to dance in compact steps and keep your arms in. So it's really good to take note of those elbows. And, you know, this isn't the time to do your ballroom, you know, routine across the floor, but instead keep things a little smaller. If you do bump into someone, it's important to say you are sorry. And that's just a very simple, so sorry. Don't correct or criticize your partner on the dance floor. It is not good etiquette to be seen dictating someone else's dance steps or grimacing at the fact that maybe they don't have the most elegant dance steps. You want to execute any drops, flips, lifts, or turns. Yes, this is actually in our book, Dan, with that quizzical look on your face. When you have plenty of space, that goes back to that first tip in this box of if the dance floor is crowded, keep your elbows in. Oh, I love it. Um, This is uh, uh, going back to what Muriel was talking about with cutting in. When a man cuts in on a couple, he taps the dancing man's shoulder and then takes over as the woman's dance partner. The double cut is when gentlemen trade dancing partners. And today it's not as common as it once was. But if someone wants to cut in, please comply graciously. You are supposed to actually accept that cut in. Fascinating. It, this is it's taking me back to different times. Well, because you're a professional dancer, so give it to us. Yeah, but it was it was before I was ever involved in the dance community really? that some of these memories emerged. I, I think of a junior high dance where I cut in, <laughs> and uh, that was my high school girlfriend for the rest of high school almost. It, it was a stairway to heaven, last dance, junior high dance. I can picture it to this day. I also am remembering a time that I was traveling with my mother. She was part of an educational delegation. We were traveling in China. This is a back in high school and there was a closing event for all the people that had participated in this conference and there was social dancing, sort of formal social dancing and all of the counterparts from China knew how to dance and the Americans were woefully unprepared. (laughs) But um, the the, the willingness to get on the dance floor and participate was was a very memorable experience for me. And I I started remembering my my introduction to that and the doors that it opened just being willing to, to learn a little bit on the fly and to get involved. Oh, I just love it. It's, it's, it is one of those moments. It puts you on the spot. And like you said, knowing a few of the basic customs when it comes to dancing can make you all that more confident to just step out on the dance floor. Find a strong partner. Do a little bit of work ahead of time. Learn a few basic steps. A lot of social dances are relatively easy once you've got a, a certain feel to them. And, and it really does open up all of these doors. Okay, so the next part of this segment that we promised was about balls. I have never been to a ball. Have you actually been to a ball? Like, I mean, Christmas ball, I don't know, winter ball, at like high school. Not since high school, although... <laughs> There is one on maybe one of our social calendars this summer. Oh, well, I will be excited to hear about that at the staff meeting. We'll liven things up a little bit. Well, when it does come to grand balls, dressing for a ball. Gentlemen, it's almost always black tie tuxedo. Um, 
It's it's what is accepted as attire for most balls. It's what you will most commonly see. Even if the invitation says formal, it's still usually the dress of choice for gentlemen. Only if the invitation specifies white tie must a man wear white tie entails. Uh, for women, dresses are usually long. Uh, it's also a time women usually bring out their finest jewelry and, and go for a hairstyle, be it up or down, that's usually a little more extravagant than your everyday. Pants can actually be an option for women, but they should be really flowy and, and very styled to kind of look in and mimic a ball gown. Um, so that not maybe with a giant poof underneath, obviously, but something that is going to really feel incredibly formal. I think that's why we often suggest the flowy, flowy pant, because it gives movement and a little more elegance than usual. My advice for formal attire is always enjoy the opportunity. Oh, my Play. gosh, right? Take, take, have some fun with it. It's so rare that these opportunities present themselves. Well, and the next one is how often do you get to wear long gloves? And with a sleeveless or strapless gown, women may wear long gloves, uh, which they actually leave on through the beginning of the ball, but remove when they are dancing or eating. I didn't know that about the dancing, which I thought was really, really interesting. Receiving lines are not just for weddings. Balls can often have receiving lines, and it is that way for a host to be able to greet all of his or her guests. A receiving line usually includes the host and hostess as uh, at a private ball, the committee heads at a public ball, and honored guests and their escorts. Uh, you just move through the line. You introduce yourself. You may introduce your date as well if you would like, but very simple. Just shake hands, introduce yourself, say what a lovely time you're having or how excited you are for it, and move on to the next person. Person. When you've greeted everyone, you then simply move on to the party. And finally, this is my favorite. I have always wanted to attend a party that went so late, and not just by casual standard college party terms, but a, a party that went so late that breakfast had been planned for. Most balls begin well after the dinner hour, and a late buffet supper or breakfast, as it's often called, is served beginning after midnight and continuing on for a few more hours. I love that idea. For me, that's like, oh, you're going to bring out breakfast right now? That's wonderful. I went to a wedding once that really? was planned to go so far into the night that there was a breakfast service. That You've experienced A lot of the people this? on the dance floor had available to them. Not a formal ball, but definitely a wedding that was a 24-hour affair. I am so etiquette jealous right now. <laughs> <laughs> we hope that you have a chance to dress up in your finest and attend a ball, or at least that you have a little more confidence at your next wedding or social function that involves a little bit of dancing. Dance floor etiquette calls for certain considerations that add to the evening and make more fun for everyone. We like to end our show on a high note, so we turn to you to hear about the good etiquette you're seeing and experiencing out in the world, and that can come in so many forms. Today, we have a salute from Kathy. I'm calling today to offer an etiquette salute to an entire town. I recently organized a girls' weekend for my aunts and cousins. The weekend included a day in downtown Highlands, North Carolina, and a selfie scavenger hunt for my family members. At the end of the day, when we gathered to examine their photos, we were both delighted and entertained. Many of the items on the list required the participation of members of the Highlands community, and not a single person was anything less than kind and cooperative. There were many smiling faces of sales clerks and business owners among our photos, 
and one in particular is worth singling out. The last item on the list was a photo of the participant engaged in the Titanic pose. One of my cousins bravely walked into one of the shops and asked the gentleman at the counter if he could help recreate the moment when Jack and Rose are at the bow of the ship facing into the wind. Not only did this gentleman agree to help, he actually called another employee to watch the cash register, left the store, and led my cousin to a nearby balcony, which was a near enough approximation of the Titanic to make a great photo. None of us will ever forget our visit to Highlands, and we'd like to thank this lovely mountain town for not just making us feel welcome, but also for joining in our fun. Thanks. Kathy, that is a phenomenal salute. First of all, it gives us all now the idea of a selfie scavenger hunt. I didn't know this was a thing. I'm so excited. I really want to do one now. But I think that's amazing to really recognize the consideration of a community who decides to participate and that, you know, these are strangers who are asked in the moment if they'll just be on camera and help out for a second. And they rise to the occasion and they made all these gals feel so welcome. And what a fun way to celebrate. Courtesy is so often part of a community, and it's really nice to hear about a community where that courtesy was so apparent. Kathy, thank you so much for sharing. And thank you for listening. And thank you to everyone who sent us something. You can send us your next question, comment, or salute to awesomeetiquette at emilypost.com or leave us a message or text at 802-858-KIND. That's 802-858-5463. On Twitter, I'm at Daniel underscore Post. And I'm at Lizzie A. Post. On Facebook, we're Awesome Etiquette and the Emily Post Institute. You can help us out. Become a sustaining member of the Awesome Etiquette community. Visit awesomeetiquette.emilypost.com to find out more. You can also show your support by subscribing on iTunes or your favorite podcast app and leaving us a review. Our show is edited by Chris Albertine. Thank Thanks, you, Chris. Chris.